Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Just want to welcome back our high schoolers who uh, were at a uh, conference this weekend at a Think uh, conference, Apologetics conference. Uh, it looks like a lot of them are slept in this morning. That's all right. Welcome back if you were there. Um, and uh, there's also a, a group of men, uh, 33 guys yesterday went out deep sea fishing and uh, put about 40 tuna on the boat yesterday. So we had a good time going out there. If you know any of those guys who went, I'm sure they would be more than willing to share some of their fish with you. So um, you want to know how big they were? Well, the one I caught was huge, but I, I don't have a picture though. But uh, yeah, <laughs> they, were, they were okay size. They were okay. But it was a great day. The weather was nice. And uh, uh, yeah, we had a good time together. So it's good to be back with all of you. Hey, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to do the whole book today. No, we're going to uh, be in Romans chapter 8 in a little while. But we are in the middle or the beginning kind of of a series uh, called Myths About God and Faith. And what we are looking at are different misconceptions or ideas about God, ideas about faith that uh, sometimes lead to some destructive kind of thoughts about God or that cause us or cause our culture to miss out on everything and the promise of a who God is and, and what he has for us. So we want to explore what, why we believe what we believe. And, and we believe that this is not just about gaining knowledge uh, for knowledge's sake, but we believe that this is knowledge that builds us up and strengthens our faith. The more we can understand about our God and his promises, the more it actually sets us free to live the life that he has designed us to live. And we believe a life with Christ is the best way to live. So that is why we want to know these things. Now we want to jump right in today and talk about what the myth that we want to look at today. So the first, the myth that we're going to explore today is this. It's a myth that says this world is out of God's control. Or another way to think of it is God does not care what happens here. So there's this idea out there when we look at the news or you just exist and we experience pain and suffering and then we see the fighting among different people and we see the fighting even um, uh, among different politicians every day and uh, how the news media can't even get it right and we look everywhere and there's a sense that people have that this world must be out of God's control because it, there doesn't seem to see, be much order to it or the thought is okay if God is in control then he must not be a very good God to allow things like this to happen in our world. Now this is a very common belief. The more we, you look into, uh, one of the reasons, in fact, I think that this myth is probably one of the main reasons why people struggle in their faith. Is this struggle with how do we make sense of a world that appears to be a little out of control. I remember when I was in eighth grade, uh, my family is very close. Uh, my extended family, I have 23 different cousins and aunts and uncles everywhere, and we spent a lot of time together. And I remember in eighth grade when one of my uncles, he died in a tragic uh, construction accident. And I remember walking into my uh, grandmother's house and in her kitchen, and the first thing I heard her say when I was in eighth grade was, well, this is enough to make me an unbeliever. I couldn't possibly be in a God who would, I couldn't possibly believe in a God who would allow this to happen to us. And that is a very common thought. Maybe some of you have thought that before. Maybe some of you have friends or family who believe the same. Some of you might be here today wrestling with and struggling with those kind of thoughts. And so we want to look at this and say, is the existence of our struggle and pain in the world, is that, does that mean that God isn't involved or he doesn't care or is there something more going on? 
And we want to look at the alternative, which we believe here as a church is the truth. And the truth that we believe is that God has planned from the beginning to redeem his people and to make all things new for his glory. In other words, that God is firmly in control, and from the very beginning, he has a plan that has been in motion, that is intended to redeem us, meaning to, re- to reestablish a relationship with his people, which is all people, and he wants to make all things new for his glory. So even though sometimes the world feels out of control, we believe that actually it's the opposite, that God is in control. So today what we want to do is explore why do we believe this, how, what in scripture tells us that this is true? And then what does that mean? Why does that matter? And how can we then live and exist in a world where we do know there's pain and suffering? Where we do know that things don't always seem in control? And how do we make sense of it? So that's what we're going to explore today. But before we jump into the text, I invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you so much for today. And I pray that now, Lord, as I speak, these words would be yours. Because Lord, in this place this morning, I know that there's heartache. I know that there's pain. I know that there's questions and doubts, and there's, it's hard to make sense of this life. And God, this morning, we may not be able to answer every question of why certain things happen. But Lord, we ask that you strengthen our belief and our faith in you, and that we can see more that this world is really about you, and that your glory is for our good, and we will experience that more fully one day. So Lord, would you teach us now and help us to understand and see you more clearly. We give you this time. In your name, amen. So to address this myth, because no one would argue with the fact that this world is difficult to live in. So, but before we get to this myth, before we get to even describing why we believe the alternate view, I want to just look at just a quick, a couple things really quick, just the the logic breakdown when we believe this. The, the thought is that, okay, the, the pain and suffering, the world's not as it should be, therefore, either God can't do anything about it, or God isn't good enough to do anything about it. That, that's kind of the logical thinking that a lot of people will have. So I want to just break a couple things down really quick, because I've seen, and even in, in my research for this, a lot of um, atheist kind of chat rooms and stuff, one of the things is, God cannot possibly be good when I look around in this world, so therefore he's not a good God or he doesn't exist. But one of the fallacies of that is, to first start with, is this, is this idea that says if God is all loving, there wouldn't be pain and suffering in the world. That fallacy assumes that love's goal is that we only experience happiness and contentment. To believe that is actually misunderstanding even the idea of love. Now please, understand that this is a difficult topic, and, and for a lot of us, there's pain and there's hurt, and God doesn't wish you harm. So let's get that clear. But one of the, if we are logically to believe that if my life doesn't go exactly the way I want it to all the time, if I ever experience pain or hardship, then God must not love me. That, that's a breakdown of the idea, the very idea of what love is. C.S. Lewis it's always good to turn to. He says this, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and we look on things as if man were the center of them. You see, if we think that love is all about 
the, making sure that the person whom you love only gets what they want all the time, that that's actually not love. Now, anyone who's a parent in this room or who has ever had parents will know that that's not always how love works. Uh, this last week, I was uh, with one of my sons who's in fifth grade. He came home with his math homework, and he has to do it, this program on uh, his iPad. And the program is this math program where you answer these questions. You have to answer 20 questions, and it gets you, then you get it, enough questions right, and then you're done. The problem is, if you miss one question, it takes 10 points away, and you have to even go more. So this is a stupid program, in my opinion, right here. I, I don't know if you're on the school board, you're part of this, but to me, that is ridiculous. If I was in fifth grade, I would rebel against that for sure. My son's not in here right now, so um, I could say that. But I think it's a ridiculous question, or, or uh, program. So he was working on it, and, he, and I didn't even know that how it worked until he said, this is hard, I missed one thing, I typed it in wrong, and now I have to do 10 more questions just to make up for that, which is ridiculous. So I said, well, what are you even working on? He said, I'm working on Roman numerals. And I thought, Roman numerals? You're working on Roman, like, oh, and then, I, you know, it's like, well, you really need to know those to succeed in life, son, so <laughs> take it serious. Um, anyway, so, yeah, it's, yeah, you know which Super Bowl it is. That's about, that's the only reason you need to know it. It's a very good point. <laughs> is it 60? What one are we on? <laughs> and, and so, and, and it's not even like he only needed to know 1 through 10 or 1 through 100. It's like it said, what is 86,320 in Roman numerals? I'm like, that takes me 20 minutes to figure out. I don't know. So he was working on it. It was taking him forever. And, I was, and finally, I just said, give me your iPad. I got, took his iPad and I started, don't tell anybody. Okay, so I, I, so I was like, I'm just going to get this done for you because this is ridiculous. We used to do that in kindergarten, you know, when they came home with word searches. I'm like, this is busy work. Let's, we'll do it for you and get it done. So I had an education undergrad. That was my degree. But so here I am now in the church. All right. Where grace abounds. Okay, so. So it helped him with his Roman numerals. The next day, he comes home, and now he's doing multiplication of, like, you know, 7,850 times 56, like big numbers. And he's doing it, and he starts complaining, kind of like, I know how to work this. And I looked at him, and, and in my mind, the same thing. I think, this is just, this is, okay. He worked on it. He was working on it for, like, an hour and still had all this time to go. So I sat down with him. I said, let's work on it together. We were working on it. We kept going. I was getting bored. And then I started thinking, like, let's just use a calculator. and <laughs> We'll just do this thing. But I made him keep enduring through it. And he kept looking at me like, Dad, this is a dumb program, right? I was like, yeah, it's stupid, but you have to do this. Now, on that one, I made him keep enduring. And it took us, like, almost two hours, which is way too much for fifth grade, but that's a different subject. But I looked at that, and in that time, my love for him said, this actually is practical. Now, maybe when you get older, you're going to use a calculator, but you're learning perseverance. You're learning that some days an employer might ask you to do something that you don't really want to do, that you just have to power through. You're learning the value of not whining and complaining and just rolling up your sleeves and doing something. So in that case, because it was, I mean, the Roman numerals, that's just ridiculous, all right? But the other one was a case of my love for him didn't take the pain and discomfort away. It said, I know what this is leading to, so I'm going to make you endure through this. Now, I'm going to sit with you, and I'm experiencing pain going through this too, but I know it's for your good. 
And so we need to start by not thinking that just because we experience any sort of discomfort, that that is the lack of love. That's a misunderstanding of love. The other thing that the fallacy of this line of reasoning that says if there's pain, then God must not love us, or if there's evil in the world that God, you know, isn't a very good God, is the idea, the belief that some people would say, well, then why does God create evil? And and the the logic breakdown there is that evil is not necessarily, and I don't believe evil is something that God created. Evil is the opposite, or it's the lack of goodness and true love. And so God, as he is love, he creates us in his image, but he creates us in his image, which means we have some freedom of thought. We can make decisions and choices. And man, because we don't have complete knowledge and complete power and complete wisdom, we're not infinite beings like God, we will at times make decisions that aren't good. And God does not create evil, but we, by making decisions that lack love and goodness, can bring evil into the world. So again, the logic breaks down to think that if there is evil, God must have caused it. Now, there is a difficult question in there that says, Why does God allow it? I don't know. I don't know. Except for that, we know that freedom gives love. Love gives freedom. And in a world somehow that when God has created us in a way, could he have created this world differently and it would still work? Yes. But for some reason, I trust that God knows what he's doing and there's something about the love of God that makes sense. To say, I'm going to give humans and a, a chance to live in this world and to make choices and not robotically follow me and robotically be perfect moral beings and somehow that in there there's love. That that is his love for us to empower us then to live this way. Why? I don't know. I don't know. That's for your life group to ask later this week and to wrestle with. There's a lot we can talk about that but not for this time. So, and, and notice that God is the one who has limitless power and knowledge in this world. But if we look at man's desire for limitless power and knowledge, is often the source of a lot of the pain in the world. So just when we try to be who God is and, and have what he has, and, and, but we're always incomplete, that, that's often the source of a lot of our pain. So I thought it's important that we at least address those kind of breakdowns in logic because those are non-starters and a lot of people that they'll just go right there God can't be loving because there's evil that's misunderstanding it so now let's look at why do we believe that God does have a plan why do we believe that God wants to redeem us and restore a relationship with his creation in a broken world for his glory why let's look at Romans chapter 8 now in Romans chapter 8 it's about two-thirds of the way through through your Bibles and I have the verses on the screen for you this morning But to start off with here, uh, Romans chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. And now Paul is writing in a a context here, he's acknowledging that there's pain and there's suffering in the world. And he demonstrates that this is not how it's meant to be. It's not how it always will be. The biblical belief is in the beginning, God created this sense of shalom. The world was as it should be. In Genesis chapter 1, there was this tree of life and a picture of God in the garden. In Revelation, at the very end of your Bible, there's a picture of shalom as it will be. And there's this tree of life and God is in the garden. And between the trees of scripture is where all this happens when there's a breakdown, when there's pain and suffering. Because the world that we're in now is not as it will be eventually, 
but it's not at it was how it was intended to be. So Paul's writing with that context in mind. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and he says this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's children to be revealed. Now what he's saying here is, the, the pain that we experience now, the, the hardships we experience now, life as we see it now is nothing. It's a blip on the radar compared to what we will one day when we fully see the glory of God. When we will see how, and, and all creation awaits for it says the children of God to be revealed. In other words, for us to fully see the, the true story of what's going on and the tr- our true identity to be made known. So what we're experiencing now is just a blip on the radar because God is, his desire is to redeem us, to restore us, to make things new, to p- make us fully understand who he is. And, and right now we're existing, he says, this won't compare to what you will one day experience. And Paul had some credibility to write this. He went through many sufferings and hardships, through beatings, through imprisonment, through people trying to kill him for his faith. Yet he could hold true to this promise because he, he's teaching us here that what we experience now, one day, this is not how it's always going to be. And God is making us new. Now look down in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as a firstfruit, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. So now Paul is saying, all of creation is longing for and waiting for that time to to be renewed and made new, for it to be back to the way it's supposed to be. Now that doesn't mean that every tree in nature, if it gets cut down, and saying, oh, I'm longing for the day to be made new. It's not, he's using this metaphorically as far as creation, but saying God is making all things new. The promise is one day, Jesus says, I am making a new heavens and new earth. I'm redeeming, I'm restoring all of this. All the brokenness that comes in our world as a result of sin is all going to be wiped away. And all creation is groaning and waiting for this time. I believe in the human heart that we're all, whether we believe in God or not, are longing for something else. We're longing for something to be made right. You could ask an atheist, is this world the way it's meant to be? And they'd probably tell you, probably not. That there's something that seems broken. And embedded in us is this desire to see things made right or, or be whole. And Paul's describing that. He's saying all of creation is waiting for this. Let's jump down now to verse 26. This is where we get into the idea of, of it's for God's glory. In verse 26, it says, In the same way, the Spirit who helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in verse 26 and 27, we have this idea that we're longing for something more, but we might not even quite know how to pray. That even when we're praying, we might say, God, get me out of this pain I'm in right now. 
But it says the Holy Spirit is, is praying for us and groaning with words too deep for us to even understand. And notice what the prayer is. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. Saying, I want them to fully understand what's at work here, God. According to God's will. When I'm experiencing pain, if I have sickness, you know what my prayer is? God, take this away from me. When my uncle was in the hospital and he was on life support, you know what my prayer was? Save his life. And I think that is the right prayer and it's a good prayer. And for some reason, God didn't answer that one. And all I can think at that time is the Holy Spirit was praying something that for me, that might have been different. Now, was, was the Father, I don't know why God didn't save his life. I, I don't know if I'll ever understand that. But I think, according to this, we see that the Holy Spirit was praying, maybe God, keep this family together. Somehow let them get through this so that they can see your glory. Somehow let them get through this that they may know you. And by the way, at the time, I wasn't a Christian kid. I lived in a family that had a belief in God, and that was about it. But those words that my grandmother said still ring in my ears. Years and years later, actually, a couple weeks, I think it was about a week before she died, I was a pastor. And I was sitting with her, and we talked about life. See, she spent the last 15 years of her life pretty bitter and angry. And that last conversation we had, she said, you know, I've made my peace with God, and I'm ready now. And I don't know how God was working. I don't know. But I know at the time, the Holy Spirit saying, this is weird. This is going to be crazy. They won't believe this, but Lord, I want you to strengthen. Use this moment. One day, here's her grandson is going to have this conversation with her 15 years later. Strengthen him. Build his faith. Lead him to you. It was for God's glory. Ultimately, I still would like it to be done a different way. I wish it would be different. I had loved my uncle. But God was praying something else. The Holy Spirit was working. You know, there's this, uh, a scene in the movie Evan Almighty. Since I've been playing a lot of intellectual movies lately for you. I'm not going to show you the scene today, but, but there's a scene in the movie where uh, Evan is now feeling like God called him and told him to build an ark, so he's building a big ark in modern America today, and his wife is just thinking, everyone thinks he's crazy, so she's in a restaurant, and she's ordered some food and is just kind of really struggling with this, and the waiter, who is Morgan Freeman, who in these movies is actually God, he, uh, he sees her, and he talks to her, and he says this. He says, let me ask you something, because she was saying, I don't know if God understands or hears my prayers, and he says, let me ask you something. Do you think when you pray for patience that God gives you patience? Or does he give you the opportunity to be patient? When you pray for courage, does he give you courage or does he give you opportunities to be courageous? If you pray for your family to be closer together, do you think God will zap you with warm and fuzzy feelings? Or does he give you opportunities to trust each other and to be together? I actually think that's pretty good theology. 
See, the Holy Spirit is groaning with prayers and words too deep for us to understand. And the prayer is, may they see your glory. May they understand your will. May you use this situation for, so they can see you as a bigger God and understand you more. And in their lives, may they experience the glory of who you are. Because this story, as we tell you often, is about God. It's not centered on us. These passages are not centered on us. It's saying life can be tough. But it's not centered on you. This is about the story that God is writing and he is doing something that we can't always understand. Now, Romans 8.28, keep going on. It says this, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is the idea that who God has known, if you were called to follow Him, he's, you're, what is the plan for your life is that you'll be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's the plan. That's the plan that He has. That we may see God clearly and that we may reflect his image more clearly. Now, let me make a quick disclaimer. If you are in pain this morning and going through a hard time, or if someone you know is, please don't jump to these verses right away. Please don't go to them and say, hey, I know you were just diagnosed with cancer, but God works all things together for the good of those who love him. It'll be fine. That's not where we start. You know, when someone says that, you know how I respond? That sucks. I am really sorry. What can I do for you? I will just sit here with you, and if you need anything, I'll be there. In fact, you can reach out to me at any time because I don't understand what's going on. That's my response. If they say, well, how could God do this? You know what my response is? It's not Romans 8, 28. It's I don't know. I don't know why he did this. But I do know this, that he's put me in your life for a reason, and I love Jesus, and he's made a difference in my life, and I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be there for you. I don't know why, but maybe for this moment, let me be Jesus to you. See, I think the problem often isn't the problem of pain and suffering in the world. I don't think that's the big issue. I think the big issue is the people who are supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus have not leaned into the pain and we don't walk with people enough. We do too much judging and telling them why they're wrong or why, what caused it. And rather than saying, well, we're here in your life. I don't know why it happened, but the G people of God are going to get you through this. And if your neighbor is going through a hard time and maybe your neighbor hates Jesus, Guess what? What a great opportunity for you to say, if you need anything, you let me know. In fact, you know what? My, my church is going to provide meals for your family for the next month. I'm not even going to let you say no. We're going to take care of you. They say, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't need that. But you know what? In time of need, people will, are willing to accept anything from anyone. What if the people of God saw our role as being in the likeness of Jesus and we were his hands and feet when people were suffering and experiencing pain? What would that do in this world? What would that do for one another if we really were in the image of Jesus? Life is filled with pain and suffering. That's why Christians exist. So we can make it a tangible, visible display of God. John Piper writes it this way. We were made to see God, to see and savor God, and savoring him to be supremely satisfied. And thus, 
spread in all the world the worth of God's presence. Not to show people the all-satisfying God is not to love them. To make them feel good about themselves when they are made to feel good about seeing God is like taking someone to the Alps and looking at a room full of mirrors. See, we too often are trying to make people just feel good about themselves when we should say, I want you to see the glory of God and the love and grace and compassion that he has for you, and I'm going to display that in your life. So, how do we respond to this? How do we become people who can live this way and understand that if we are made, God has made us and has a plan to restore a relationship with us. If God has want, is making all things new and this is for his glory, it's about his story, then what are some practical things? I think there's a few practical things we find in scripture that helps us live with this perspective. Because let me tell you, this is not easy. This is not easy stuff. So the first thing is this that I think is really practical, is look for God's glory in every situation. Now let me explain that. When difficult things happen, it is my tendency to look at why that is no good for me. Why I don't like that. And I can even explain to God if, how if he changed the situation, how that would be even better for him. We, we could do that all the time, do we not? Something like, God, you know, if I get this raise, I'm going to be so generous to you and your church. So, you know, you want to hook me up because I'm struggling a little? I'm going to hook you up, God. We, we, we kind of have that mentality often. Rather than saying, Lord, I don't know why I'm in the situation I'm in, but I want to see, show me your glory in this situation. Show me something about you in this situation. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. In this passage, Paul is actually saying he has a thorn in his flesh. It's a common phrase for, for many of you probably are familiar. And he actually, we don't know if that's an actual thorn, probably not. It's, it could have been a physical ailment. Some people think maybe he had something that he was praying, God, heal this, and it wasn't working. It could have been um, an emotional thing. It could have been uh, it, maybe a struggle sin where he was saying God remove this from my life please and he said he pleaded with God he said three times that's a biblical way of saying over and over and over and over again and I kept doing it again and again it wasn't like three times like you said well I prayed for healing three times it didn't work he's saying no I kept begging God to change this and this is how God responded to me second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 no that was the response. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So then Paul said, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, I am strong. Now, I don't think Paul's actually saying like, I love getting beat for Jesus Someone comes up to me, a whip, and hits me and says, thank you, may I have another. That's, I love this. He doesn't go looking for it, but what he's saying is, my weaknesses are an opportunity to see how big my God is. And think of Paul's life, where he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by a venomous snake. I mean, these are pre- it's a pretty good list. <laughs> and God kept getting him through, and he said, Lord, I He didn't say, oh, why do you keep doing this to me? He says, man, why do you keep showing up in these desperate moments? You must be pretty incredibly big. See, when we look for God's glory in every situation, it starts to shift how we think of things. And again, 
it's not going to make losing your son or your daughter easier. It's not going to say like, well, okay, God's glory is here. No, that one's a mystery, but you look for it anyway. God, what are you trying to teach me through this? How are you showing up in your glory in this situation? So let's look for God's glory. The next one is, is this. Change your perspective. Ask the question that says, or, or go with a mindset that says, God must be at work in this somehow. God must be at work in this somehow. So change your perspective on the situation. I remember when my family, uh, I, I got my graduate degree and I was working in a church and started off at a really big church and then worked at another pretty large church. I was in youth ministry. And then my family, we moved over to Israel. We studied at Hebrew University and I was doing some pre-PhD work and it came back to uh, California and started a church plant but to get enough money for uh, benefits, many of you know the story, I started working at Starbucks. So here I am and you know, have postgraduate education and a lot of leadership experience. And now I was working for a 20-year-old uh, who used to be in my youth group. So that's, that's how life went. And I was getting up at 4 a.m. every morning to make coffee for you people. So, <laughs> and... And there were days when I just kept thinking, like, Lord, where, where did we go wrong here? Like, what, what did you, where, where did you miss what was going on? And, and there was a day, and I've told the story a while ago, but I, when this lady, she was just yelling at me about something, and I'm sitting there like, are you kidding me? She's yelling, I don't even remember what it was all about. It was about, she wanted to return something. I said, I can't do it. And finally, her, this is her parting words. This is how she got the better of me. She left and went, huh. 40 years old, working at Starbucks. And I just went, I'm not 40. But, <laughs> but in that situation, you're thinking, God, what, okay, where, what are you doing? But then I realized that my time working for that company for a couple of years, I prayed with and ministered to more non-Christians than I ever did in my entire life. Because they came to me every single day at 5 a.m. <laughs> and they would tell me about, I just got diagnosed with cancer. I just lost my husband. My son's struggling. My daughter's going through a hard time. They would share these things. And I used to call myself, I put on my green clerical robe is what I called it every day. And I would have people say, like, and I would say like, you know, I'm going to pray for you today. And they would be tears in their eyes getting their skinny vanilla latte. Saying like, I love this place. <laughs> and I change the perspective and don't say, God, why do you have me here? But say, God, why do you have me here? God must be at work somehow. Paul writes this when he was in prison. I would think Paul's goal was to go and share the gospel to the whole world. He's in prison in Rome. This is where you say, God, why are you doing this? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, this is what Paul said. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard that's in Rome and to everyone else that my, that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. And most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord because I'm in prison, and they dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Paul said, I am here. Instead of saying, God, what are you doing? He's saying, what are you up to? 
Change your perspective and say, God must be at work in this somehow. I don't know how, but I know, according to Scripture, that you're working for your good, for His glory, and He must be doing something. So what is it? There's this great, I I saw a commercial a couple years ago, this organization called values.org puts out these commercials that are pretty, I don't know, I think they're supposed to make you cry. Um, But it has this little boy playing baseball, and he's in the backyard, and he has his bat and his ball, and he says, I'm the greatest pitcher or bat hitter in the world, and he throws the ball in the air, and he swings, strike one, picks it up, says, I am the greatest hitter in the world, and he throws the ball up, and he swings, strike two. He looks a little confused, gets some dirt on his hands. He said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. He throws it up. He gets a big swing. Strike three. He steps back. He looks down, gets a big smile. He said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. (laughs) Sometimes changing your perspective changes everything. So let's change our perspective, and then finally, let's rest in the presence of God and have hope that he is with us. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to end our passage today says this, what then are we to say about all these things? We've been talking about pain and suffering, that God's making all things new for his glory. So Paul says, what are we to say about all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. If the God who created the heavens and the earth is for us, though I don't always understand, but I trust that he has a plan and he has a purpose. I trust that he is at work. He's making all things new for his glory, and his glory is for our good. If he's doing that, and I know he's with us and he is for us, then who could be against us? So have hope that he is with us. And know that if God is in control, that you don't have to be. And you can let that truth seep into every one of your interactions, every one of your relationships. It transforms everything about us. So this morning as we end our time, we want to end by reminding ourselves and trusting and believing that we have the God of the universe at our side. And again, we're not pretending this morning that that makes the pain of what you're going through mean nothing. It means something. And I don't know what it means. But it means that we have hope and that we can grieve with hope and we can walk with one another in hope and we can be people of hope to the world that I think kind of needs it. Would you agree? They need God's glory to be seen in you and in me. They need that. So let's end our time here. I just, I want to pray for you this morning because I know that we come week after week carrying a weight and Some of you are probably here this morning and you feel like that weight just might be enough to crush you. And so I want to pray for you 
in that pain, in that weight this morning. And maybe it's a friend or a family member as well. So as we enter time, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something. I, it's awkward. I don't do, we do it every once in a while. But if you would like, if this morning you're saying, I, I just want a little extra prayer, would you just stand where you are so I can pray for you? And if you, this morning it's resonating, just stand where you are and we're going to pray for you. And I know that takes courage. And if no one stands, that's okay. We'll pray for the next service. But um, so we'll, we're just going to enter in a time of prayer. And if anyone needs it, you can feel free to stand so we, the people around you can pray. I'll pray for you. And we'll just ask to move in this morning. And if someone around our friend there could just gather, put your hand on her and pray for her over there. God, we thank you this morning that this is really about you and your glory. And Lord, that is a mystery to us sometimes. But God, I pray this morning that your presence, that you would teach us about who you are. Lord, and I pray that you would teach us to trust you more. And Lord, you would show us what you're up to in our lives. And so now, God, I ask that you would move in this place, and we pray for anyone in here who just needs a little extra sense of your presence, an extra sense of, of, of your uh, grace, your comfort, your peace. Would you just pour it out right now? For your name's sake. We thank you for this time. Amen. Why don't you stand and let's sing this last song together.